This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Policy borrowing is a major topic in the field of comparative education. On the surface, the idea is relatively simple. One group of policymakers borrow the ideas of other policymakers to improve a system of education. This is usually described as borrowing quote-unquote best practices. But the work of many comparative education researchers has shown that who borrows what policy and for what reason is much more complex. We cannot, as Michael Sadler warned in 1900, assume a picked flower in one part of the world will blossom in soil at home. My guest today, Ratna Lau, dives headfirst into the debates on policy borrowing in her new book, A Critical Study of Thailand's Higher Education Reforms, The Culture of Borrowing, which was published earlier this year by Routledge. She argues that although the Thai state has always been an active borrower of Western ideas, the pervasiveness of a Thai-ness discourse has often been used to suggest its so-called independence and idiosyncrasy. Ratna Lau received a doctorate in comparative and international education from Teachers College, Columbia University, and is currently a lecturer at Thammasat University in Thailand. Ratna Lau, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will. Your newest book looks at policy borrowing in higher education in Thailand. Uh, you specifically look at about the last hundred years of uh, the development in higher education. Before we talk about the more recent developments in higher education, could you just explain what the system of education looked like in Thailand historically, maybe before modernization and westernization and globalization? Yes. um, Actually, before education as we call it today is very, very recent um, development. It's actually 100 years old. um, But before it, education happened at two levels. One at the grand at the palace. So like the elites and the nobility would go in the palace and study things inside the palace. Um, and for the commoners, education happened at the temples and mostly they learned about Buddhist texts or local medicines or local tradition. So that was before we had a concept of what school is. Yeah. And so in the late 1800s to about the 1950s, you, you call that period the period of modernization. Uh, what happened at this time in higher education? What were the developments that, that define this moment? Um, like I said before, education came through the westernization processes when Thailand wanted to modernize. And um, the, the modernization of education happened actually before higher education itself. Um, so when King Chilalongkorn um, wanted to modernize the country, he created a few schools, the Royal Pages School. Um, those weren't higher education. So it was just a education for the elite and nobilities in order to become like modern civil servants. But then in 1916, um, the first university was established. So this was after a, quite a few years of secondary and primary education in Thailand. And it was during this time that um, the existing professional schools that existed before um, came together and became um, 
Jilalongkorn University. Jilalongkorn then had four faculties, the faculties of art and science, engineering, public administration, and medicine. You can see that all of these faculties are related to civil servants' missions, and they, are very, they were very linked to ministries. And all the classes were taught by foreign professors, and they were very teaching intensive. You have to see that um, before 1916, before Jualongkorn was established, most of the elites and the princes went to Europe for higher education. So there were people who were educated through higher education, but it wasn't in Thailand. And during this time, the purpose were clearly to train the elites to become modern civil servants. So the elites who could not afford or could, who didn't go to Europe, and the access was very limited. But during a very um, 20 years later, we had second university, which was Thammasat University. It was created in 1934, and this university was created after the transition of the absolute monarchy to constitutional monarchy. So now the concept of university changed from training the elite to train the mass. At the same time, um, we created, there were um, three more universities created in 19, before 1950s, which were located, all located in Bangkok and all were linked with different ministries. So this was before 1950s. Things were still very elitist, very limited, and everything was linked to the creation of civil servants. And after that, after the 1950s, you say that there was this massification of the university system. Um, how did the university expand and, and why did it expand? Did it change its focus um, of elite civil servant training? Yes, um, it expanded in several ways and we have to re understand that such expansion came from the involvement of American um, influences in Thai politics and economic as a whole. So we shifted from a focus to European elitism to American massification. And such expansion happened um, in different levels. One is in terms of location. So before this period, as I said before, most of universities were, all of the universities were in Bangkok. Now three universities were created um, in the regional area, such as Chiang Mai University in the north, Konkan University in the northeast, and Prince Songkrai University in the south. And then in terms of access, um, the, ex ex um, the creation of new universities allowed the access to expand tremendously. From like, in 1965, we had only 2% of gross national enrollment ratio, but the current number until the present is nearly 30%. And we, um, we also witnessed the creation of two open universities in Bangkok. So now this is another um, change because before this, all universities were limited access. The students had to go through very competitive entrance examination and the seats were linked to the numbers of human resources needed by each ministry. But this period, um, there is an increase of access, an increase of opportunities available, and it also increased of provider because in 1969, the Private Education Act was promulgated. Up until that point, only the public university was functioned, but now um, the private became involved in higher education. And in terms of the subject areas, we also saw um, 
massification of interest as well because there were more subjects that are not that were not related to the need of the civil servants. So there were more um, comprehensive universities. There were more universities that focused on technologies. There were more courses on business during this period. What type of American influences did you find during this period? The most um, evident example is the creation of comprehensive university um, of the three regional universities I mentioned before because before this period university in Thailand each university had a characteristic to be linked with particular ministry for example Mahidon was linked to the Ministry of Health or Thammasat was linked um, to um, political and um, legal aspects but then um, the influence of American comprehensive universities redefine the concept of what university should be. So university should teach courses beyond the interest of um, the state. There should be teaching more on business, there should be teaching more on the arts, all in one place. So the concept of comprehensive university was was very new to Thailand at that time. And, and how did these influences travel to Thailand? Is there a, a person that brought them over or many people? Actually, um, it happened in three levels. One, at a governmental level. So during this time, Thailand received, and it was during Cold War, right? So the Thailand received um, financial aid from the U.S. government, and there were U.S. personnel traveling in and out of the country. And there are um, many interesting um works on the American involvement in Thailand during the Cold War. So education was no exception to that. In terms of the foundation, um, and Fulbright was one of the main um, organizations involved in sending Thai scholars abroad to the United States, as well as sending American technical assistants to Thailand. So during 1960s, 1970s, there were nearly 7,000 Thai students going to the United States for education. So a lot of educators, particularly educators, brought back with them the concept of university in the U.S. and began to shift um, the thinking about education from European influence of creating the gentleman and creating um, elite in order to create the mass and equal opportunity. And the more recent period from the 1990s, you call one of globalization and internationalization. What changes happened in the Thai higher education sector at this time? Yes, um, the changes can be divided into levels, one at ideological level. As I mentioned before, um, Thailand went through a Europeanization of education, and then it went through Americanization of education. But since 1990s onwards, policy papers literate the rhetorics of global trends and global influence. So the, the shift of focus, instead of being a bilateral influence, it became an international point that um, instead of targeting particular country, it became this international trend as, as, a, as a concept of reference society. And at another level, um, two things are evident. 1990s, we also, this is American um, USAID funded um, policy paper, which became very important for the thinking of Thai higher education. Um, they introduced the first, the term of internationalization. 
um, to Thai higher education. So this was the first time such term was introduced. And since then, there was a, a push to create international programs um, and there are push for international collaborations. As things stand, there are nearly 2,000 international programs in Thailand. So this was one of the um, shift of um, policy. And also the influence of international ranking on strategic thinking has become a, um, an, the main influence for many Thai universities. So we see that every time international ranking is announced, Thai media and leading Thai universities just use it as a all use it as a goal that Thai university need to keep moving toward. World class university is another term that became fixated in the ma mainstream thinking of Thai higher education. And this this study of yours uses uh, history to really understand the the various ways in which Thailand has borrowed various policies in higher education from other countries, um, but also, like you said, multilaterally, more internationally. Um, this is what we call policy borrowing in the field of comparative education. Uh, and you argue that it's much more complex than this commonsensical notion of sharing best practices between or among nations. Um, can you explain what you mean by the, the idea or the concept of policy borrowing? Um, yes, because normally we believed that um, generally when we talked about going to study for, from abroad or policy visit from abroad, there is this assumption that we borrow, we learn, or we copy from somewhere else because it works, because this policy is proven effective to address some kind of problem. But it doesn't have to always be the case. Policy borrowing and lending is an analytical lane um, to not just describe, um, but also analyze why such policy traveling or policy borrowing takes place. So it can also come because of political reason. It can happen because economic reason, or it can also happen because of cultural reason. So it doesn't always have to happen because it works. And many times the literature show that policies failures in many countries were silent when the borrowing takes place. It is being mentioned anyway, even if it doesn't work from the original country. So uh, policy borrowing and lending is more interested in um, the more critical dimension rather than the descriptive or the common sense notion that it works. That's why we have to borrow it. And can you give us a, a, an example of policy borrowing perhaps in the, the period of modernization, the, the late 1800s to the the mid-1950s or so? Yes. Um, so um, the most important, um, the most evident period is also the concept of education itself. It's a borrowing construct um, during that time. And um, so we, real, we, we witnessed that, for example, when you borrow something, it doesn't happen just the policy itself. It can happen from the discursive level. So during that time when Thailand wanted to modernize and wanted to create new schools, Thai elites created the discourse that without these schools and without this act, Thailand would be left behind, Thailand would be colonized. So the use of external threat of colonization to justify the creation of the school is the one of the most evident form of policy borrowing discursively in Thailand. And during that period, the need to become 
civilized, the need to become ex, uh, modernized was used as a main justification for the creation of the first university, for instance. And why would certain policy elites want that outcome? Um, because without which, um, this is also back to um, Kita Steiner's Kamsi work on the politics of borrowing and lending, that the creation or the use of external um, forces or the, the reference of these external forces create a coalition for politically contested reforms, right? So the use of bringing something from elsewhere will create the group, bring the groups together. In the case of historical development of Thailand, for example, before um, Rama V um, centralized the country and created an absolutist state, the power was aggregated among great families in the, around the court, and in order for the government, order for, in order for the king um, to centralize such power, through he used education, modern education, Western education, to bring these different groups together and say that these different groups had to work for the nation or had to work for the state. So the school at that time, as a borrowed concept, became the site that bring together different um, conflict and political interests. And, and it's domestic politics we're talking about. So there's some domestic political issue like the king wanting to bring a, uh, a diverse group of people together, perhaps under one banner of Thai nationalism. Correct. And um, the ability to promote that through schools was seen um, as, as, or it became easier to promote that through the borrowed concept of schools. So it's it's this domestic political issue that, that looks for borrowed ideas from from outside, perhaps. Is that correct? Yes, and um, I have to highlight that um, those of us who are looking at policy borrowing, <laughs> focusing on what um, is called sociologic. So we, don't be, we, we are looking at different cultural, political, and economic reasons at the local level that create... Um, a fertile grounds to borrow or talked about or bring about or adopt policy from elsewhere. So it's not just, you know, um, there are this American inference or there are this um, European inference that come into Thailand and we are passive recipient of this. But we are also, we were active agent of borrowing and selectively borrow these ideas. Um, talking about selective borrowing from that period, for example, as I mentioned before, um, education was hap traditional education was happening in temples. So when um, the foreign concept of schooling came in, the Thai state didn't have the money to create schools um, separately. So many of the temples ground became the schools. And that's why we have a lot of temple-related schools in Thailand, even until today. So that was another clear evidence of this selective borrowing. Would that, be, yes. would that be considered economic borrowing? Um, I think the rational, was, the rational to bring in the school um, to borrow was politics. But the implementation of it had an economic dimension. Because I think um, when we talked about economic borrowing, um, the literature highlights more or less the aid dependency, that, that aspect rather than um, the half-hearted development that happened. And has there been uh, uh, any 
economic aid dependency in Thailand that has influenced um, borrowing of any sort? Um, during the American period, uh, it's, it's more characterized as economic borrowing because a lot of seed fundings came from American economic assistance to transform um, universities or to actually create new universities. So those were the period that would be more economic of borrowing. And you also use the term uh, culture of borrowing. Um, what do you mean by the culture of borrowing as compared to the politics of borrowing and the economics of borrowing? So um, the, the politics of borrowing, for example, look at the political justifications of why borrowing takes place, right? Sometimes it happens because such borrowing process has a political um, benefit, as I mentioned before, um, it brings different coalitions together or it makes the contested policies at the local level um, easier to be implemented if you talked about things that happen every, um, elsewhere. And meanwhile, um, economic of borrowing talks about the aid dependency in developing countries where because the aid was coming in, therefore the borrowing or the implementation takes place. Some of works talks a lot about the economic dependencies of borrowing, which create um, educational divergence or convergence um, in various countries. So when I came to do field work in Thailand, I had these two concepts in mind, and I was um, looking particularly at the quality assessment policy for higher education. But after re-interviewing and researching with more than 80 um, policy elites and implementers, it wasn't one of the two that actually created the justification for QA. The most immediate aspect that people talked for the need of QA is the global trend. So they said that we need it because it's a global trend. We need it because everyone was doing it. This word was repeated again and again. And when I read the interviews, I realized that it wasn't just politics or economic reason. There is also cultural reason. Country like Thailand shows that there are cases where policy elites give a cultural significance of um, policies, um, give a cultural significance for the policies that come from Western countries or come from um, what they perceive to be more developed or more civilized. So um, the term cultural of borrowing actually was based on earlier work of Michael Apple and Takash Takamaya that they talked about cultural politics of borrowing, which looking at um, this aspect of cultural factors that influence the decision. And would you say that it's um, the the culture of borrowing or the politics of borrowing or the economics of borrowing, is it one or the other or is it a combination of all three that you can see in any one example? I think it's a combination of um, these trees. I think they are not mutually exclusive. Um, they are working and they are overlapping in some cases. Um, the cultural reason was there, but there also had a political ramification or some aspect. It was the economic that began it, but because of cultural influence or cultural factor helped to also justify it. So in the case of Thailand, even though I differentiated um, different periods into this each term, in the close reading of it, it's, mutually ex it's, it's not mutually exclusive. You can see the remnants of different things that play out. And... Perhaps for some future researchers that are listening to the show, 
how did you operationalize or, or even just simply define the concept of culture? The concept of culture, um, it's almost accepted norms or what become the logic or what become accepted definition of that culture. Of course, um, different readings give you different notion of of what culture is, but in this term that I look at it, it, it is things that is not contested, or it is things that being taken for, um, that being accepted. Because when I interviewed, when I questioned why we, we, we had to have this policy, or why different things was introduced in Thailand, when they said that everybody was doing it, there was a concept of normalized. There was not even a question that it's, it, 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 it's not even a question. So um, in terms of culture, I'm not saying that 100% had to be agreed, but this is a, what a general norm or the, the assumptions of that particular case. And so maybe you could go into this quality assessment example a little bit more deeply um, as a recent example of policy borrowing that has elements of the culture of borrowing that you describe? Um, yes. Uh, for example, when, like I mentioned, so when I, actually you have to see quality assessment in relation to other quality policies that Thailand has. So Thailand, when I coined the terms of culture of borrowing for this policy, it's not just QA in a single, um, um, a single factor because Thailand has quality assessment, Thailand had internal quality assurance, Thailand had Thailand qualification frameworks. And when you justified or question the policymakers, the first imminent answer is always Australia is doing this and Japan is implementing this. So because of this logic that Thailand has to be at par, there is this embedded logic that Thailand wants to be at par or being accepted as a modern civilized nation, it keeps making it easier for policymakers to just bring in different policies on top of the other with the same justification. Um, in some societies, it might be harder to justify this logic of culture of borrowing because there is a local resistance. Because, But in the case of Thailand, we see um, at the policy elite level, let me highlight that these policymakers find the justifications by copying or borrowing other people's examples, even if these policies, QA, TQF, or other qualification frameworks, were contested at the origin countries. Of course, uh, when we looked at um, Thailand as a system, not everyone agreed with the policy elites, and that's what we struggled in the country at the moment because there is a contrasting conception of what quality is or what quality should be. But because there is this constant um, fear of falling behind, we keep introducing new forms and new indicators to the point that no one else had the time or energy to focus on the corpus of education with its teaching and research. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you uncovered uh, putting this book together? The biggest surprise is the, I would say the one of the running thread around the, um, across the chapters in this book is not that Thailand happily adopt westernization or happily adopt 
Americanization. There is a constantation between two cultures, between different systems in every policy that Thailand has embraced. So um, I didn't want to, just because I say that the country is easily adopt Western concepts or Western um, policies, that didn't mean that it went, it didn't go through conflict or negotiation or contestation. And in fact, um, conceptually, the culture of bullying is built on the concept of ambivalent, that a country accepts at the same time resists the policy or the cultural inference. So in this case for Thailand, it shows in every policy that it no matters how much the elite say to be wanted from abroad, there is a nationalistic sentiment from the elite itself to try to justify the Thai-ness or the Thai idiosyncratic features in everything that we do, even if QA. For QA, for example, we still have to have some indicators about how Thai we are. So, so it should not suggest that Thailand is always embrace westernization and it also it embraces it with a nationalistic paradox so this is my surprise is that how consistent that we have we have maintained this paradox over 100 years well we very much appreciate your contribution to the world of policy borrowing and and i recommend the book highly to all the listeners out there and Ratna Lau, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Yes, thank you, Will. Ratna Lau is a lecturer at Thammasat University in Thailand. Her latest book, published by Routledge, is a critical case study of Thailand's higher education reforms, The Culture of Borrowing. Next week, I speak with Hugo Horta about higher education research in East Asia. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. If you want to highlight your research on FreshEd or give us feedback on the show, please send an email to gesig.ces at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Like what you heard on the show today? please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.